Hi, my name is Nicole. Throughout this series, we will read each psalm as a call and response. If you're able, please stand as we recite Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, ever-present help in time of trouble. Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with the rising of the sea, be still and know that I am God. The Lord of hosts is with us. God is in the midst of the city. It will not be shaken. God will help it when the morning dawns. The Lord of hosts is with us. Be still and know that I am God. The Lord of hosts is with us. Come and see what the Lord has done, the devastations he has brought on the earth. Be still and know that I am God. I am exalted among the nations. I am exalted in the earth. Be still and know that I am God. The Lord of hosts is with us. The word of the Lord. Please remain standing as we pray. Gracious Father, as we gather together as your people and listen to and respond to your word, we pray that your spirit would be active among us, that you would open our ears to hear, our minds to understand, and more importantly, that by your spirit, you would take your word and dive it deep into our hearts and help us to know what it means to live in union with you as our refuge, and then to walk out into the world as people who know what it means to take shelter in the God of Jacob. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. While you're being seated, we want to take a moment before we begin today and wish Pastor Evan Riedahl a very happy birthday today. Evan, we love you, man. Thanks for all that you do to help us in our life together here at New Life Downtown. Well, my name is Jason Jackson. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Our lead pastor, Glenn Packiam, is up at New Life North today preaching on Psalm 51. So I have the opportunity to be here with you this morning. This past December, my wife, Sarah, and I celebrated our 13th wedding anniversary. And yeah. And yesterday, I got a chance to spend uh, most of the day with 13 couples at New Life Downtown who are walking through the uh, pre-engagement or pre-marital counseling process here at New Life Downtown. I was reminded during that time of Sarah's and my own preparation for marriage. We actually did 14 weeks of pre-engagement counseling, mainly because we were a mess, uh, kind of coming into all of it and just thought, you know, before we, you know, put a ring on it, we better have a little longer conversation about what's going on in our relationship. And I remember several weeks into our counseling sessions, uh, our counselor, you know, is kind of doing the thing that counselors do week after week after week, asking, you know, poignant questions, and mainly questions like, okay, Jason, how do you feel? Or Jason, how does that make you feel when Sarah says this? Or how does this make you feel when this has happened? And after several weeks, he realized I only had two answers to the question. I was either fine or I was frustrated. That's it. 
I had no emotional vocabulary beyond those words. Like I had an emotional bandwidth that was like this large. I experienced emotions outside of that, but I did not know how to articulate them. And so our counselor very lovingly handed me a piece of paper that looked something like this. It was an emotional feelings vocabulary word bank with uh, words across the top that said something like, you know, happy, sad, angry, scared, confused. And then columns down the side that listed the intensity of those emotions. So strong, medium, or light. And I would have to sit there in our counseling sessions, and he would ask me, okay, Jason, how do you feel? And instead of answering fine or frustrated, I'd have to pull out my sheet. (laughs) I'm like, okay, am I generally in the happy or sad category right now? All right, how intense do I feel that? And then I'd have to look through and be like, oh, yes, I feel despairing. Like, wow, that's a really strong word, Jason. Thanks, it's on the sheet. I was, able to, I was able to find it right here. I had to go through this whole process of learning how to identify and talk about my emotions. And frankly, I probably need to keep the sheet with me after 13 years of marriage. It's still incredibly difficult work for me to be able to identify to name and to give voice to the things that are going on inside of me. I have to learn how to speak in this particular way. And I think the same is actually true for us when it comes to faith, that we have to learn the language of faith, that when we come into belief in Christ and we learn what it means to be in relationship with God, there's a process of learning how to have conversations with him how to talk with God. And the book of Psalms, which we're doing this long sermon series on, is exactly that. It teaches us the language of faith. It helps us learn what it means to have a conversation with God, to how to talk with him. It really, in many ways, helps us to discern or uncover and give voice to what's going on in the inner life that we have. It helps us to be able to think through what is going on in my soul at this point. How do I identify that? And therefore, then how do I articulate that to God? What do I do with that? How do I bring that to him? And what is his response in the middle of those things? The Psalms help us to learn the language of faith. Last week, Pastor Glenn, when he was talking about Psalm 51, opened with a conversation about Anne Lamott's book that said that really there are three sort of fundamental prayers that we pray, help, thanks, and wow. And he said that there's something really beautiful about that list, but the list is missing some things. And he went on to say the biggest one that's missing on that list is the the phrase, I'm sorry, that part of the language of faith is learning how to repent how to confess, how to say that we're sorry to God. And as I was thinking through that, I was like, I actually want to add to that a whole list of questions. Why? How? How long? And the question that Psalm 46 explores, where? God, where are you? Where were you when this happened? Where are you right now? Because I'm having a hard time figuring out where you are in the midst of this. Where were you when this happened to me? Where were you when this happened to my friends? Where are you when this is going on in Florida or Syria or name any other place and time? God, where 
are you? In some sense, it's a pretty fundamental question for us, one that we have to wrestle with at various points in time. If I know for me personally, I've wrestled with that over and over and over again. I remember when Sarah and I were pregnant with our first baby and had a miscarriage early on, going, God, where are you in the midst of this? When something kind of unexpected and tragic happened to a member of my family, just going, God, where are you? Or ending up in a job that just didn't turn out to be what it had promised to be, saying, God, where are you? And you're probably already thinking of the number of times that you've asked the question or that you're asking it now, thinking about the death of someone in your life who died tragically early or the despair that you're experiencing in the midst of a relationship or finances or the damage that you've seen done either to you or to a family member or to a friend by other people. And asking the question over and over again, God, where are you? It really is the first question in many ways that we have to be able to answer, especially when we face times of trouble. We're asking God, how near or how far is he from the pain that we experience or the problems that we face? We face. Is he present or is he absent in some way as we're walking through these things? It's the question that we have to answer actually before we can consider all of the other questions. Before we can really consider the questions about why and how and what next, we really have to wrestle with the idea of where is God in the middle of it? What is God's relationship to our distress? Because in, in how we answer that question really ends up shaping what we end up doing how we answer the question about God's proximity to or distance from our pain determines in a lot of ways what we do with it, how we walk through the tragedies and the troubles that we face in life. In Psalm 46, the psalmist explores the proximity of God specifically to two things. First of all, he explores the proximity of God to natural disaster, And then second of all, to international political upheaval, things that, of course, that we never have to think about or wrestle with at any point in time in our lives. No? Things that we're still wrestling with, questions we're still considering today. And he begins asking the question, where is God when the world falls apart? When the mountains crumble into the center of the sea, and when the sea's waters roar and rage, and when the mountains shake because of its surging waves. The psalmist here depicts really a cataclysmic kind of earthquake, one that causes the very mountains of the earth to crumble and topple and slide into the sea, and for the impact of that into the sea to cause the ocean to roar and to come back and hit and drown whatever mountains remain. This kind of massive earthquake that actually causes an undoing of all of creation. The picture really kind of depicts a return to chaos, a return to the world before God ordered it. We think about that story in Genesis chapter 1. We see that the Genesis chapter 1 begins with this account of the earth being formless 
and void and purposeless or functionless. And then as the story unfolds, God begins to form and fill and assign function to things. And he takes something that's chaotic and he begins to get it, give it order. He takes something that's lifeless and makes it teeming with life. He orders it and arranges it and assigns it purpose and function. On the third day, God, God, God gathered the seas and he made dry land appear. And here, the psalmist is imagining what happens when creation be- becomes undone. And the very things that God has ordered and set up and put in place begin to slip back into chaos. He's wanting to know what it happens. Where is God when we return to a pre-creation chaotic state? I think this is sort of like the global cosmic version of what happens in our house every day. (laughs) We spend all night putting everything back in place. All the toys in this bin and in that bin and all the clothes that ended up in all sorts of places and the shoes and trains that ended up under the couch and the unbelievable number of dishes and crumbs and putting them and cleaning them and sweeping them and sort of getting everything established back in place and then we rest like it's the seventh day (laughs) and turn on Survivor. Yeah, I know, we still watch it. So... And then there's this moment of just rest, and you go into sleep. And then in the morning, we have these three primeval forces in our house that wake up and just begin to rage utter chaos against everything that we have ordered and filled and formed at a side function to. And it repeats over and over and over again that there's something about my children that just love chaos and want to bring it about. But on a deeper level, we have to question and wrestle with, where is God when chaos reemerges? When the chaos of life begins to sort of reassert or attempt to reassert its reign, when the mountains crumble into the sea. And he goes on and he says, but it's not just the seas that roar and the mountains that crumble. It's not just the natural powers of the world that are unstable but there is political instability. He wants to know where is God when nations roar and kingdoms crumble? Where is God when governments or other earthly authorities appointed by God to do good, appointed by God to bring order and life into the world when they actually do the opposite? Where is God when the governments and authorities of the world begin to rage rage war, when they oppress those that they're meant to protect, when they exploit their power or they pander to others who have power, when they pursue self-interest, the expense of the common good, when they begin to bring things back into chaos or when they collapse altogether and we see what happens in a nation or a country without any kind of government. Where is God when the human forces of the world become chaotic? Where is God when they begin to crumble? And we know that it's not just mountains and nations that crumble. We experience other type of unraveling in our own world, in our own lives. We know what it's like for our bodies to crumble, for something about our bodies to deteriorate, to age, to get sick to be stricken with a debilitating disease. We know what it's like for relationships to crumble, 
for friendships that we held so dear to slip out of our hands, for marriages to crumble when we had so much hope for a long life together, when, our, when the market crashes and our finances crumble, when our families seem to be in despair, or when our dreams or our plans or whatever else it might be seem to just turn to sand as we try to build them. And sometimes it's not even, even these large things. Sometimes it's a series of little things. They crumble. Turn on the faucet to water the lawn and water ends up in your basement. And then something else happens. And then something else happens. And then something else happens. And the combination of all of the little things begin to pile up and build up. And we wonder whether or not we're going to crumble in the midst of it all. We start to wonder, okay, God, where are you? We didn't think about it when the first thing happened. But by the time the fifth or sixth thing happened, it was like, God, where are you in the midst of this? Where is God when, the thing, when things beyond our control seem to threaten everything that we hold dear? seem to threaten everything that we've built our lives around. And we begin to threaten the very things that are the foundations for our lives. Is God close? Is he distant? Is he in some way behind it, causing all of this to happen? Is he completely ignorant to it, somehow aloof and unaware Does he know? Does he care? Where is God when everything around us seems to be crumbling? It's probably on God's frequently asked question list. There's something about the question that's universal. We've all asked it at some point, if we're not even asking it this morning. But interestingly, as we ask this question, as we wrestle with it, there's psalms that give voice to lament of that. There's psalms that teach us how to grieve, how to cry, how to cry out, how to bring our complaints to God. But interestingly, Psalm 46 leads us a completely different direction. There are psalms that lead us that way, that give voice to that cry inside of our heart. But Psalm 46 strangely leads us to a place of confidence in the middle of it. That in the midst of all things crumbling around us that could lead us to despair, that could lead us to hopelessness, Psalm 46 helps give voice to a kind of uncanny confidence in the midst of the storms. The psalmist actually boldly proclaims that God is present in our troubles. That as everything crumbles around us, that somehow God is actually present with us in the troubles. He's not outside of them. He's not distant. He's not aloof. He's not unaware. He's actually in it with us. That this is where God is. There's an extreme proximity to God and our troubles. says that God is our refuge and strength. A help always near or an ever-present help in times of great trouble. That's why we won't be afraid when the world falls apart. The word translated there, near, in Hebrew is actually the word to be found. That God allows himself to be found. 
that God can be found in trouble. That it's in trouble that God can be found. That when we're in crisis, when we're in distress, that it's actually God who's right there in the midst of it. In fact, the most common refrain in this psalm is this, is that the Lord of heavenly forces is with us. The God of Jacob is our place of safety and our refuge. That he is somehow in the trouble with us. And not only is he in it with us, but God is our shelter in and not from trouble. God is our shelter in, not from trouble. The psalmist actually assumes that we're going to have trouble in life. Assumes that things are going to crumble. Assumes that things are going to unravel. That things are not always going to go as we planned. That things are not always going to go the way that we want them to. And he doesn't in any place say that we will never have trouble. In fact, Jesus himself says, in this world you will have trouble. That there is a sense that we are going to encounter opposition, resistance, trouble, distress, something in our lives. In fact, even following Jesus can cause more of that in our life. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. That there's nothing about the life of faith that in some way inoculates us from having trouble. We sometimes think that this is how it works, right? If I just come to Jesus and I start following Jesus and I do everything the way that Jesus says to do, then suddenly I'm going to live a semi-charmed kind of life. But we're going to get old and our bodies are going to break down and our friends and our family, unless Jesus returns, are going to die. We are going to still have trouble in this world, and there's nothing about the life of faith that is an escape from that. It's a way of walking through it with Jesus, of finding God in the midst of those things, not God plucking us out of them, but God strengthening us and protecting us and empowering us and comforting us as we walk through the troubles and difficulties of life. Unfortunately, so many times we think faith is the opposite, then we think faith is just something, you know, if we just have enough of it, then we can sort of like live in a bubble and everything will just kind of bounce off of us. You know, the enemy will like throw disease and it'll just bounce off somewhere. God does heal, but not all the time. God does keep things from us, but not all of the time. That there will be trouble in the world. And God promises to be our shelter in the trouble, not our shelter from the trouble. And he also goes on, he says this, he says that God, though, at the same time, is Lord over every trouble. That he's Lord over every trouble. That even if natural forces rise up, even if creation seems to be coming, coming undone and chaos seems to be reemerging, that God is still Lord over creation. The God who spoke in the beginning will speak again. The God who brought everything into order will it someday reorder everything again. He still has that power. He is still Lord over the trouble while being with us in the midst of it. The God who spoke 
will speak again. The God who creates order out of chaos will do it again. It says, even if the nations rage war, that God is the Lord of the heavenly forces, that God is Lord over those things, that his army, his power, his force is stronger than those things. It goes on and he says, come and see the Lord's deeds, what devastation he has posed on the earth. What I love about this is then it says what kind of devastation God brings. He brings wars to an end. That he breaks the bow and shatters the spear and burns the chariots with fire. The kind of, God, of devastation that God brings is that God destroys the things that destroy us. God uses the things, takes into the things that we use to destroy one another, and he destroys them. That's the kind of devastation that he brings. He is Lord even over the most destructive forces that we can create, that we can come up with, that we can use. He's still Lord over that. And so if this is true, if this is who our God is, if God is present with us in trouble, and he's our shelter as we walk through peril, and that God is Lord over all of the powers that come against us in the world, then how should that shape our response to trouble? How does that shape the response that we have when we encounter the kinds of things that we encounter in the world? What do we do if God is actually near, if God is with us as we walk through these things? And I think the psalmist gives us four things that he encourages us to do as we're walking in the midst of these things or experiencing these things in life. And the first thing he says is to stop, to be still and know that I am God. The Hebrew word that is used there actually means in some way to relax and to let go of, to release one's Hand, to cease doing something, to stop moving, and to in some way let go. As we look at the psalm, everything in the psalm is moving. That the whole psalm kind of pictures things moving all over the place. That the mountains are sliding and the seas are roaring, the kingdoms are crumbling, all of these things are moving all around. And if we think about our own experience of trouble, that's what it feels like, doesn't it? It's like everything is sort of frantically paced. That everything seems to be moving and shifting. When we're looking for something stable to stand on, it seems like everything is going out of control. And I don't know about you, but whenever that happens, whether it is the smallest thing in life or the largest thing in life, I just try to move faster. Nobody else? It's like, this is breaking. Okay, I got to run over here and I got to run this. And I'm grabbing, I'm clutching everything and I'm holding on and thinking that if I move faster and I grab this and I clutch this and I fix this and I move this over here, that somehow I can wrestle it back under control. That I can somehow fix it. That I can somehow make it all work out right and be okay. And I frantically move around, just ask any of my coworkers when anything goes wrong with planning center or anything else that we use at the church. Go into this frantic sort of pace and I try to clutch everything. The psalmist, in his confidence that God is present, 
actually relaxes, stops, ceases moving, while everything else is moving around, and actually begins to loosen his grip. The picture that I was thinking of as I was thinking of this is that moment where Jesus is in the boat with his disciples, and the storm is raging all around them, and the disciples are doing everything they can to try to keep the boat up, right? Bailing out water, moving sails. They're doing everything they can to try to make sure that they don't capsize. And what's Jesus doing? He's taking a nap. He's relaxed. He's confident. He's still because he knows his Father in heaven. He's able in the midst of trouble to stop, to cease. The second thing that the psalmist encourages us to do is to stay. He says that the mountains and nations, when they crumble, that that's happening, but there is a river whose streams gladden God's city, the holiest dwelling of the Most High. God is in that city, and it will never crumble. Same Hebrew word used for the mountains and the nations. It was saying Jerusalem, the place, the temple, the place where God himself dwells, the place where God himself is present, the place where God is a shelter, a refuge, a place of safety, the place that God is will not crumble. And in the New Testament, we recognize that the place that's described the same way as the temple in the Old Testament is the church. The church, the gathering together of God's people, the coming together of those who are called by Jesus' name, that that is the place that God dwells. This is the new temple in some way, is the gathered body of the church. And what ends up happening, though, for so many of us is that when difficulty or trouble comes in our lives, we start looking for a way out of it, right? We're looking for a way out. We want to leave and oftentimes what happens is, is that we start looking for other shelters. That we want God not just to be a shelter, we want God to stop the storm. And so we leave the shelter, we leave the gathered community, we leave the faith in some way, and we go and start looking for other shelters, taking ourselves out of the place of safety out of the place that God is, and we begin to move and look for alternative places to find an answer to the very things that we want, looking for someone or something else to stop what's going on around us when God is actually in it with us, providing us a place of shelter. So we begin going, we look for maybe a new relationship. We're going to look for some sort of escape with drugs and alcohol. We go to the computer or the internet. We look for some sort of escape, for some out. We begin trying to take shelter in all kinds of things, some way that takes us out of the trouble, moves us someplace else. And in some extreme situations, and unfortunately more often in the conversations I have, I find people actually leaving the faith leaving the gathered connection of people, people who are called by God's name. But God says to stay in the city, to stay where he is, 
to stay in the place that he dwells because it's in that place that there is a river that makes glad the city of God. That there is a place that in the midst of all that's raging around us, as everything else moves and topples and crumbles, there is a steady presence of God that shelters us in the middle of it, that will not crumble. And somehow when we stay, we find joy even in the midst of everything crumbling around us. When we start looking for alternative shelters, our troubles actually intensify. They actually can't deliver on what they promise. God encourages us to stay with the people of God because that's actually where he is. It's where he dwells. It's where we find him as a shelter. The third thing he encourages us to do is to wait. He says, God will help. God will help the city in particular here. God will help when the morning dawns. God will help. I don't know if there's any greater test of our confidence in God than our patience with him. There's no greater test of our confidence in God than our patience with him. In those moments when we pray and ask God to do something and to do it now, and then we wait. And we pray again, this time with more fervency, thinking, you know, well, maybe that was the problem. And then we wait. And then we gather two or three or four other people together and think, well, maybe if they pray really fervently, and then we wait. And then we gather the whole church together and we pray, and we pray with fervency, and we keep praying, and then we wait. And the praying matters, and the gathering together matters, and all of those things are significant. And yet, there is a call inside of the Christian faith to wait, to know that at some point, hope will come. At some point, the morning will dawn, but we don't always know exactly when that point's going to be. Some of us have prayed prayers and seen immediate responses. We've prayed for people to get well, and they got well. We prayed for something to change, and it changed. We prayed for a, a cloud to lift, and suddenly there was dawn again. And others of us have been praying for things for five, and 10, and 15, and 20, and 30, and 40, and 50 years. And we wait. So our confidence is not based on a timeline. Our confidence is based in a person. Our confidence is based in the God who's actually present with us in the midst of troubles, who is our shelter in the midst of those things, and who we believe is the Lord over them, that ultimately is the only one who can actually address the very things that we're deeply concerned about. And so we're willing to wait as long as it takes because he is the only one who can actually do the things that we deeply need. And so we wait, and we wait, and we wait. And we recognize that suffering, as Paul talks about, produces perseverance, it produces patience. And patience in some way produces character inside of us and character hope. And our hope doesn't disappoint because we know at some point in time, dawn will come to life. That dawn again will happen. The morning will dawn. And the fourth thing that we do is we worship. He says, I am exalted among the nations. I am exalted throughout the world. 
You know, as hard as it is to stop in the midst of trouble, as hard as it is to stay, because it can be really hard to stay, and as hard as it is to wait, it can sometimes even be harder to sing, to find places where we say, even as I'm stopping, even as I'm staying, even as I'm waiting, I'm still going to sing that God is Lord over all. I'm still going to exalt him above everything else. While things topple around me, I'm still going to sing. Last week, uh, my brother was with us here for worship. Lives in a small town I grew up in in Iowa. It was the first time that my brother had been able to come and join me in worship at a church that I've worked at. Uh, So it was a really special time for me. And my wife got to have a chance with my brother kind of beforehand, because this is very different than the church that they normally attend, just kind of talking them through the whole service and talked about, you know, the various things that go on in our service and mentioned at some point during the service that he may hear someone call out, hallelujah, praise Jesus. And she told them a little bit about our brother Marvin. And some of you know brother Marvin. He's not, hopefully he'll be here for second service. Life has never been easy for Marvin. Life has been filled with trouble. And Marvin comes, and Marvin sings. And he sings, and he sings, and he worships while he waits, while he waits for God's deliverance, while he waits for God's help, while he waits in the midst of trouble. He seeks shelter in God, and he finds a way in the midst of it to continue to worship to continue to sing. My brother at the end of the service looked at me and he goes, man, my life is actually fairly easy. And yet my mouth is filled with complaint. And then there's Marvin singing and worshiping and reminding us all that there still is a song to sing even when everything around us is crumbling. That there's a song to sing to the God who is Lord over it all. As we've talked through the Psalms, we recognize that in every single one of the Psalms, we can look to them and see that they find their trajectory pointing at Jesus, finding their fulfillment somehow in the person and the life, and the death, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we think about God being present in our troubles, this is no more clearly depicted for us than in the person of Jesus, who being in the very nature God humbled himself and came into this world, taking on the very nature of humanity, becoming a servant, and becoming obedient even on to death, that Jesus entered into our troubles in the most dramatic way. And he entered in order in the midst of those things to actually be a shelter for us in trouble. Again, not from trouble, but in the midst of it, we find Jesus sheltering those in need. And ultimately, through his death and resurrection, he became Lord over every trouble. That he defeated sin and sickness and darkness and death and disease and war. He defeated them all and through his resurrection became Lord over every power, defeating them all. 
He is the Lord over all of our troubles. And so we gather together into this place every Sunday morning, believing that God is with us, that we come with the same confidence as the psalmist, that God is with us, that Jesus is Emmanuel, that the Spirit dwells in our midst. And so we come with confidence and we go through the very things the psalmist encourages us to do as we come to the table. We stop clutching. We stop trying to hold on and figure out all the things that we're going to do and fix and all that we're going to do to bring order back into the world. But instead, we acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and we open our hands to receive the very thing that we need from him. We stop clutching. And then we stay. We stay at the table every Sunday. We continue to come back to the same place. And we stay here knowing that Jesus is our hope. That Jesus is the Lord over all. And therefore, we're going to stay at his table until he comes again in final victory and sets everything right. So we stay and we wait, and we stay, and we wait. And as we do so, we worship. We come with a song in our heart, even in the midst of all the things that are going, and we turn our eyes to him, the one who is with us in the midst of it, a shelter for us as we walk through things, but who ultimately is Lord over it all. And we sing because we anchor our hope in Jesus' ability, in Jesus' promise, in Jesus' return, when he comes again and sets everything right and good again. Amen? Well, let's pray as we come to the table. Father, we come before you this morning, and we seek you to be our refuge. That as life crumbles around us, as we deal with heartbreak and pain, as we deal with loss and despair, as our carefully constructed lives seem to be unraveling in our own hands, as we see chaos rearing its ugly head, and as we experience violence and war and devastation, we come to you. And we want to say that today we're thankful that you're actually here with us, that you're not at a distance, that you're not ignorant of what's happening, that you're not unaware, that you're not aloof, that you actually do care. You care enough to enter into the trouble with us, to provide shelter for us in the midst of all of our storms, while at the same time being Lord of it all. So we come to you the great Lord of the universe. And we put our trust and our hope and we seek shelter in you and in you alone. In Jesus' name we pray.